0: Welcome to the Gifted Life Podcast, where we have conversations about organ, tissue, and eye donation and transplantation. You can always find us at thegiftedlife.org. I'm Lori Steele. I'm Sarah Blakemore. And I'm Kelly
1: Ranham. Coming up today on The Gifted Life. So today we're going to be learning more about organ and tissue donation as it relates to the American Muslim community. And we're going to be learning from the Muslim Life Planning Institute and their experts.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about caregiver burnout
0: and how to cope with it. All that and more. Are you guys ready? Mhm, let's get to it. Here on the Gifted Life podcast, we learn on each and every episode today, no different, guys. Uh, Kelly Ranum, Lopa CEO, is here in the hot seat. Hey, Kelly.
3: Hello.
0: (laughs) Uh, Recently, you were the AOPO president. That's the Association of Organ Procurement Organizations. And you learned more about the Muslim Life Planning Institute. And today, you bring that topic here, and we
1: get to learn about that and more. Absolutely. I'm very excited. Uh, I met Kareem through my efforts at AOPO. So, thank you, Kareem. It's been a, a great journey learning with you and uh, learning about you. So, uh, I would like for you to introduce um, our guest today, if you don't mind. And then, if we could get into talking about how uh, you started down the path of uh, organ donation and transplantation education with the Muslim community.
3: Uh, uh, the local organization and the Gifted Life um, uh, uh, podcast uh, for inviting us on uh, today. Uh, it's, it's an honor and a pleasure. Um, I'm happy uh, to uh, have in our company today uh, a few people who've um, you know, come a long way uh, with us on this journey you know, of, uh, of making a Muslim community aware of the permissibility of uh, organ donation and transplantation. Uh, we've invited um, Imam uh, Jahari Abdul-Malik uh, was a prominent uh, imam in the uh, local Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. Uh, and Imam uh, Jahari has a background in genetics uh, and, I'm sure, um, um, many other areas. That sort of stands out. And as well, he's a staunch advocate of uh, organ uh, donation and transplantation. Um, I've got a, a good friend and a partner of mine with the uh, Muslim Life Planning Institute, uh, Samuel Sheree, who's also uh, the Chief uh, Economic Development uh, Officer uh, for uh, the Institute and for the Muslim Life Planning uh, Network, and uh, our relationship goes back uh, some 20 years, and it's a really interesting story about how we got into this conversation and how we began working together to uh, develop MLPI. And last but not least, certainly not least, uh, a good friend, a colleague, Uh, of of mine, uh, Colin Ross, who's the uh, Vice President uh, of uh, International Development for Eversight, which is an iBank located in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And I was fortunate enough to uh, become acquainted uh, with Colin uh, uh, through uh, work uh, in the uh, Southeast Michigan area with Gift of Life Michigan.
1: So I guess um, for me, this was a really important topic to bring to the table because um, educating our communities is the most important thing that we can do. And that's something you guys have taken on and moved the needle with. And I think that it's important for me um, to spread that education and that knowledge uh, past D.C. and Detroit and into every other community across this country And so, I guess my first question is: um, What is the perspective from the Muslim community uh, about organ donation and transplantation?
3: Uh, I
4: I guess that's where uh, I guess that's where I come in. Mm -hmm.
1: You are the expert. Yes. Um,
4: Well, I'm I'm something, but let's 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 see (laughs) how you know what what really matters. um, If you're a lecturer. Is not what you said, but what people remember. Mm. And so perhaps we um, uh, we need to uh, go back a little bit. A number of years ago, and and um, Kareem can help me. Um, I was approached by um, Leslie uh, uh, Companion. Uh, what is it? <laughs>
3: Companioni. I think it was two thousand fourteen. Right. <laughs>
4: um, working in the D.C. metropolitan area. And she came to, uh, she had someone call me and and they set up a meeting to come to the mosque. Um, This is a a mosque in Northern Virginia that has about 3,000 worshipers every, uh, at the weekly congregational worship. And so I thought she was, um, you know, like many groups, they come and they want, you know, to come and learn about you know, what's going on in the mosque and so on. So, so I sat down and I was meeting with them. And they said, well, you know, tell us about the Muslim community. So I said, okay, well, um, there are probably about 1.5 billion Muslims in the world. Um, Muslims make up about 1.5% of the population in the United States. Uh, 1, 1. 1.5 million, something like, like that, I think is, is, is a reasonable number and um you know they believe that uh, jesus and moses and abraham were all in the the line of prophets ending with the prophet muhammad they take their guidance from the quran and the example of the prophet muhammad they pray five times a day they fast during the month of ramadan they give charity from their wealth and their special kinds of charity um, And one of those is a gift that you can give that provides benefit to people after you're dead. Hmm? And last, if you make the pilgrimage to Mecca once in your life, if you're able. So they're like, okay, and you know, it took us about half an hour to do that, and they said, well, Imam, what we're really here to learn about. It's about Muslims' attitudes toward organ donation and, and transplantation. <laughs> I was like, okay. But, you know. So with that backdrop, now the real question is, so how do people of the Islamic faith look at and say, okay, how do we know within our faith tradition whether this is something we can do or not do? Uh, And so they look into the Quran as the revelation from from God or Allah. And they look into the traditions of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And if there's no clear um, answers, uh, maybe these are things that, that happened then, then they look to things that scholars wrote about in a more contemporary sense. And then out of that, they look for the opinions of those scholars in something uh, in jurisprudence they call fiqh. Uh, it, 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 is a, it is a juridical ruling around the thing. And so that's kind of where we joined in. And I said, well, and it is my understanding. It, they found an article that I, I had, had written that uh, organ donation and tissue transplantation is permissible under certain conditions. And those those conditions are are, to some degree liberal if you accept certain notions about when is the time of death. And so we we began working to say, well, how can we convey that message uh, to the wider community? Because they said most of the time uh, when they have individuals who go into uh, a hospital room, they meet a family. Who's of the Islamic faith from a variety of cultural and linguistic backgrounds. Their general answer was, "It's against my religion." And from that, we began having uh, the the uh, identifying that there is a real need, not just for for Muslims to engage, but also uh, to teach them uh, in in a 21st century context. What does their religion say uh, about, about this, this new practice? And there are many, many cultural barriers, and there are many different cultural backgrounds. I, I used to work uh, at Howard University with MOTEP uh, because African-Americans have a certain, um, it's not necessarily religious, but there's a, a, there's a folklore that creates the sense of saying this is not something that we should do we don't really trust the system. And there are many Muslims who have those same feelings about um, donation and transplantation. But that—that that is, the, I believe, the genesis of a lot of the outreach work that gave birth to uh, Muslim Life Planning Institute.
1: And I believe four years ago, you were recognized um, for this work uh, through Donate Life America. Is that correct?
4: The, that is. You know, I'll tell you a joke. There was a man, he was (laughs) standing at a, at a, at a, at a, at a, whatever, the gate, and they canceled his flight. And he told the woman at the thing, you got to book me on another flight. You don't know who I am. And so she made the announcement. Does anybody recognize this man who's in front of us because he doesn't know who he is? (laughs) (laughs) So I was was (laughs) recognized. But um, I think the real, the real recognition is. Uh, goes to the work that that Muslim Life Planning has done in building relationships all across the country uh, around this around this work.
2: Yeah, and it's clearly important work. So, um, my role at Lope I'm a family advocate, and I approach families for donation, mm-hmm. and um, so I've worked with several families um of the Muslim faith, and one thing I've heard. Um, with several of them is that their religion um, doesn't allow donation because they believe that the person should go as they've come so whole in a way.
4: when you're in the group and you're out of the group there are differences in other words a person may come uh, from Pakistan right mm-hmm. and they 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 understand their religious tradition maybe the way, I grew up Episcopalian, right? So if all you know about your religion is what you learn in Sunday school, Mm -hmm. um, it really doesn't put you at the place of saying, "Well, you know, was there a religious conference about such and such in whatever year?" And the, you know, the hierarchy of your clergy sat and met. Yeah, you don't know. You don't know. You know the folklore of. Of your faith, what what you learned in Sunday school when you were paying attention. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> uh, you know, you know. Um, so th- there are these folklore issues, and you say, okay, where do they? They're actually drawn from a religious text. So if you're a person like me, I know the text that that, that they, they are drawing their own conclusion from which is it is impermissible to mutilate the bodies mm. of your enemies. Mm. So the prophet Muhammad made a statement in in what we call hadith the narrations of of his actions or inactions or what have you right and they're written in a book and there are there thousands of them and one of them is how do you treat prisoners of war or or fall you know casualties of war and one of them is that unlike Um, other people uh, we as Muslims if someone dies on the battlefield it's not appropriate to mutilate them Mm? And so now the person says aha so if someone dies and we we cut them open and take their organs out Mm. their person is being mutilated like the person in the battlefield then there are other myths that that, uh, and these are totally unfounded but the myth that the, oh. the person who's deceased feels pain if you cut them mm. after they're deceased. And you're like, okay, that one totally there's, there's no I I can pr- bring the the evidence that says the person who's deceased from from the scripture doesn't feel anything. <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> right? But you're in the out you're not in that group. Mm-hmm. So when so what, what is helpful and, and what we've learned in and and uh Muslim well, so of my planning is, the easiest thing is once you and your staff are oriented, that you can say, well, I spoke to um, a prominent imam, and he was saying that there's a, an opinion from the Fiqh Council that says that, um, that th- the way we do it is okay. Mm-hmm. But I'm not an imam. But if you want to talk to the imam or something like that, I, we can connect you with the imam. Now, just saying imam three times to that person now gives you credibility.
2: Yeah, you know, that's interesting because, you know, we want to make sure that we meet all of our families where they're at. And we like to, you know, not just... Respect their culture, but learn about their culture. Know about their faith, and to give them those faith leaders who can support them through their decision-making tools. So, um, I know that the Muslim Life Planning Institute has a lot of resources on cultural competence. And could you tell us more about those?
4: I think we should segue to to Kareem, mm-hmm. but you know, I'm a I'm a I you know I'm a Stephen Covey advocate. You know, Seven Habits <laughs> of Highly Effective People. Yes. and one of them is seek first to understand mm-hmm. and then to be understood
5: mm-hmm.
4: and so um th- when i approach people even they're muslim and uh, they're in a crisis my first my first place is to understand you know what's going on with you how are you how are you doing what's happening right um and then i may discover that their issue has nothing to do with the fiqh opinion <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it has to do with something else mm. right yeah um, so i gotta find out like where right. they coming from but not trying not to be the resource but to say i have resources for you right if you're open to them um goes a long way mm. uh, because even as an imam People will challenge me well imam, I never read that before. I'm like and you're an imam right <laughs> <laughs> right you know I mean it's okay, you know, it's, it's okay you know mm-hmm. um but but having having the ability to share with people resources that um here to here to for didn't exist for people who live uh in the western hemisphere. Uh, and, and that is the work that, that Kareem and, and Sharif have been helping us put together.
0: All right. And Kareem, um, you know, we do want to learn more about the Muslim Life Planning Institute. And if you can tell us the difference between that and the Muslim Life Planning Network, uh, that's where we went to prepare ourselves for today. And we were just blown away by the resources, the tools that are at our fingertips that some might not, not even know. So um, tell us about that and tell us how to learn more
3: yeah i mean uh t- well it's a real interesting um how m- i actually got involved uh in this uh conversation um i was uh asked by uh, the same um young lady that <laughs> sought out Imam jahari uh from washington regional transplant community um uh was actually called to assist uh, Jahari. in fact Imam jahari called me uh when he was presenting uh to uh the w r t c group, uh, I think one of the first times that, uh, first few times that he actually sat down and, and offered a class and, and what we realized, uh, at that time, uh, was that, and uh, this was a, 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 real big need, uh, to be able to, you know, share, uh, more about, you know, the faith of Islam and understanding of uh, who Muslims are and, uh, and, you know, what, you know, our, our faith is all about, uh, in, uh, in an attempt, you know, uh, uh, to really uh improve the efficacy of the delivery of health care, you know, uh, to our uh, Muslim patients, to do both, to uh really begin to instill uh, more trust, you know, within that relationship, you know, uh, between uh, Muslims, you know, and, and caregivers, but then also uh, to give uh you know healthcare uh professionals who are actually working with Muslims and Muslim families uh, a bit more confidence. Uh, in their approach uh, to families, uh, especially uh, in uh, crisis situations. The uh, difference, to answer your question, between uh, MLPI and uh, MLPN uh, is that we understood, uh, based on the model, you know, uh, how we work within the United States, a lot of times uh, these uh, efforts for education and and philanthropic uh, pursuits... uh, Actually, come together uh, a lot easier, you know, within uh, nonprofit, you know, corporate formulation, uh, and so we sought to uh, form uh, the the institute, you know, more as a vehicle uh, for uh, designing uh, um, uh, really innovative learning experiences, and so uh, we have sought, you know, to uh, create relationships, uh, you know, within the academia, within the academic um, uh, realm. Uh, and we have actually written uh, materials uh, to help uh, to in, in increase uh, the understanding in, in a number of areas, and I can actually go into that at some point uh, if we get to that. Uh, and, and the network uh, itself has really uh, been stood up uh, to uh, have a vehicle uh, uh, at the ready uh, when uh, there are projects that actually require uh, you know, our organization to actually work you know, uh, in different ways, you know, uh, and following uh, uh, different pursuits. Uh, So that's where you actually see uh, the actual difference, where the uh, institute uh, is more in line, in alignment with uh, your uh, typical nonprofit, uh, philanthropic organization, you know, working with academia, and where the network is actually uh, situated uh, to be able to take on projects and actually uh, provide consulting services uh, in the area of uh, uh, executive training, organizational uh, training, and the like. Um, so that's to answer your question in terms of the, the, the difference between the two organizations.
1: So I was wondering, then, how did uh, you and um, Mr. Sharif connect in in the Muslim Life Planning Institute? And I, I know he has a story that I hope he's going to share with us um, a little bit in a little while. But how did that connection happen? And, and how did you see that then broadening the scope of um, MLPI? Mm
3: right well, you know uh Samuel and I actually knew each other uh it, our, you know, our relationship predates our work uh with uh, the institute or the network um that uh he's uh, really um good friends if not best friends um, um with uh, an uncle of mine uh, who has since um um you know returned you know he' has, uh passed away uh, some some years ago but uh, he was um um you know a good friend to him for for many 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 years um i actually uh, came to i uh, know Samuel like i said it predates our work with m l p i and he was actually once a, a principal uh of an Islamic school located in washington d c uh, where uh, my children uh, attended and so we knew each other uh, from that experience um however, it was uh, really interesting all of samuel tell the story you know uh, about you know um uh, his involvement with organ uh, transplant um, but it was uh in the middle of uh, planning uh, for the uh, forum, the FIC forum, uh, which occurred on July 20th, uh, 2016, it was in the middle of planning that, that I happened to mention uh, to Samuel that, you know, we we're putting this program together, and we're really excited, you know, to be working with the International Institute for Islamic Thought and, you know, Imam Jahari, and uh, he was like, well, you know, what is this about? He inquired a little bit more, and I said, you know... Uh, It's about organ, you know, um, donation transplantation, and uh, it was really entitled Reaching Consensus on Organ Donation, a Call to the American Muslim Community, Uh, and uh, I mean, he he told me at that time, he says, that's how um, Danny, that's what Danny did. Um, Danielle, uh, uh, Danielle Sharif, his eldest daughter, um, had actually uh, donated organs, but that was the first time that I even ever realized uh, that that's what his daughter had done, Um, you know, uh, and I'll let Samuel tell that story, but that was in the the run-up to uh, the actual fic form, and it was uh, from there that I I just knew, like, wow, this is just not normal. Like, this this came, this this was really divine, right, that I would learn about this in this kind of way. I mean, Mm, we, we would talk all the time, we would be doing things, and then all of a sudden this comes up, and then I just casually mention it to him, and he tells me, I mean, it's such uh, an impactful thing uh, that really, and I'm certain in many ways, changed his life. Uh, And so I talked with Leslie, and I said, you know, we really, I think it's a really good idea if we invite, you know, Samuel's wife, you know, uh, to this event, you know, as donor families, as a donor family, because I'm certain that um, they have a lot. You know, to say, if not even to say a lot, you know, to contribute um, uh, in this space as we grapple, you know, with the, the challenge. The given that, hey, they are a Muslim family that made the choice to do this, right, at a time when most people thought that this was something that was forbidden in Islam.
1: Samuel, um, are you willing to share a little bit about Danny with us and your experience? Yes.
6: Yeah. Sure. Thank you very much for having us. Mm-hmm. Uh, the experience is a little bit. Let's start with Kareem mentioned Danielle's passing. What happened in 2006? Danielle passed in a horrific traffic accident outside of Tampa. Her and her a friend of hers. Uh, Kareem didn't at the time Kareem didn't know about that. It was 2006. Well. It, Kareem was just beginning his director de- debut in Washington D.C. He was over at the school, and he was sharing some information with me. Kareem and another uh, a lady he worked with uh, actually attended the ceremony in Washington D.C. Native Vision, which is a organization uh, affiliated with Johns Hopkins, Danielle had been, belonged to. She had, for like six years. She had attended camps on different reservations with Native Vision and the NFL. Players Association were all combined. She was one of the counselors for six years. So they put on a, a I've for her in Washington, DC. Kareem covered that. Kareem and Serena covered it. Uh, at that time, he still didn't know that we had donated her audience. We fast forward, Kareem and I kept working together. We fast forward to 2016 and he brings up the fixed form. And my wife and I, we attended one, what was important for us, uh, and I share the story when Danielle passed, Danielle was the eldest of our children. Our children, three children. At the time she passed, she was 36 years old. She had the accident happened. She was on her way back to uh, Tampa to to spend the weekend with her sister. But she was coming from Atlanta, where she had finished her, She had started her, her. She did her master's and a Ph.D. coursework at the University of New Orleans. I think it was Katrina happened and so she had to had to leave yep. New Orleans. She uh-huh. went to Atlanta to finish her coursework. Mm-hmm. She was on her way back to visit some friends when the accident happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gloria and I flew in from Washington D.C. Danielle has a younger sister. She's 40 now. Sila flew in from I think she was Cleveland. Our son came in the next day. We were at the hospital I brought us out of Tampa. And one of the first questions, one of the, we were approached, but now we know it was a doctor. didn't know at that time it was a doctor. It was a doctor inside of the network. Her questions like Iman jahari she didn't come to us. Her her concern was about Danielle. She was on life support. She asked about her life. She, she said some things about her health. Uh, one, one thing that stuck with me in that conversation leading up to that, she said, how was Danielle, by the way, we couldn't find any ID. And uh, she was 36. They thought she was 25 years old. She was 36 years old. She had just come back from to go back to get her master's. She had just retired from professional basketball in Israel. What we still, Gloria and I, who's my wife, still think about and comes to us, the doctor who handled that with us leading up to the donation, we don't remember asking. Uh, so Asila was standing there, Dan. Uh, my son was standing there, that year, and Asila was like, Dad. And what she's saying, that's something that Danielle would want to do, mm. and that's basically how it happened. So we don't. There are three. There are three adults now. But at the time, if you remember, you are in the organization. You understand in 2006 mm. that we didn't. You couldn't. Get to, I think we was doing live Georgia and Tampa. We did. You. You didn't know who received the art. Yeah. They couldn't do anything about it. I think five or six years later, we moved to Kansas City. I received three letters that we carry to this day, but letters were written by oh. the recipients of the ordinance. Amazing.
1: Uh, so
6: the, the the organization has grown. Our experience has grown. There were some tough times for us. One thing that what helped bring about Muslim life planning and what we do, there's during bereavement and during that end of life period, uh, we had to go see Scargi, uh, we were Muslim, and they sent us to. a I think it was a Christian, and it's not this not to be disparaging our lifestyles, who we were, what we believe. He, I remember saying after the first visit, really love the way you approach, and however, it doesn't work for us, mm-hmm. it, which it's what it, because we have a different culture, we have a different belief right. uh, system that it doesn't match. So we had, and we we never had anyone to, we've assembled people. Now we never had anyone like Imam Jahari who could speak to us in the time of bereavement even though we had donated the ordinance. The and that's that's kind of what precipitated when after the FIC form, we came out of the FIC form that day on the uh, 20th, 2016, July, that Kareem and I on the way to the car and then back to uh, the hotel was that we, What's developing here? We need to be more involved with how this happens, and if it is to happen, something. And I'll just share it and move on from it. At that big forum, there weren't a, a lot of Muslims, except maybe Imam Joe, maybe two or three, who were really troll arguing, do uh, or didn't express that uh, that that concern. And most of our conversation, most of the conversation that day was PhDs and doctors back and forth with, with medical jargon. And I remember asking at the end of the day, I didn't speak till 4 o'clock, we were there from 9 o'clock, and I, I heard the bantering back and forth. Mm. And my statement was, I believe that because of what you do in the field that you're in, that the bantering back and forth is something that you need. Persons in the state that my wife and I had been in uh, ten years ago, when they were when the, when that happens, we really like some plain talk and someone to have some concern and to share the importance of what's happening in your industry and how we could be more, how we would definitely be able to to benefit our how we'll feel better about ourselves and about our audience, our family's audience being place somewhere else. And I would like to end with that. I'll never forget that procedure. Leslie's organization, well, Leslie was one of the organizations and since then, but that's been a lot of years. We found a number of of the OPOs who uh, have developed the concern, even though they're Muslims, we are Muslims, to it's come a long way from when it was in 2006, I'll, I'll say that. And we're. I, I hope we had a lot to do with it or something to do with it, however we look forward in Muslim-like planning to develop and to uh, go forward, increase and advance on that relationship and what, and what Muslims do as far as contributing. The other thing, as I close, we found out too, Imam Jahari spoke of African-Americans. We found out at that big forum that Muslims were the least likely to, to devote. To, do, to uh, donate organs and African-Americans were the second least likely. And we were, we belong to both of those cohorts. So that wasn't really a good feeling coming out of that mm. big farm. So thank you very much for allowing me to share.
1: Oh, I appreciate it. And um, as somebody that's been in this field for a lot of years, more than I care to think about, but um, 25, actually, if you're asking, uh, <laughs> it, it is very different today um, than it was in the early 2000s, and I'm um, I'm so glad that your experience working with MLPI and being involved with other OPOS and seeing some other sides that you you see that growth, and and I do think your organization is a huge part of that, and I want to continue to bring that forward and um, bring the exposure and knowledge to all of our OPOS across the country so that we're ahead and we can support this community mm-hmm. and the Islamic faith. And I, I just, I think it's so important and I'm really glad that you have shared your story. So you mentioned that it was a thick farm. Is that correct?
6: Forum. Yes. Forum. So could Remember you, ours.
1: could you explain the, the, the role of I guess thick so that we're kind of all on the same page, exactly what the, that the meaning behind you that is. Manage your heart.
6: Remind yeah. you your heart. Uh, okay. yes.
1: <laughs> I'm <laughs> yeah. going to kick back I'm, to you then.
4: I, I, I had a feeling it was coming. This way. <laughs> <laughs> um,
3: uh,
4: the, you know, in many in many ways, um, when when we think about how how do people make certain um, ethical decisions what what is the source of knowledge that they use to make make um kind of major decisions usually uh, if you have a tax problem you go to your an accountant and the accountant looks at the best practices of of you know tax law and says okay this is the best way if you're doing estate planning you go to an estate planner And they say, okay, if it's like this, it's like this, and you have this That When it comes to matters of faith, um, an imam will look at a council of scholars who have weighed in on an issue, and they will come up with a ruling. And so in America, there are a number of different um, well-established groups. One of them uh, is the uh, Institute of, Islam- International Institute of Islamic Thought. And so what they did for us at, um, at our request was to bring together scholars from, and this is what Sharif was about, from a variety of uh, Islamic um, juridical backgrounds to hear the case for and against um, the ethics, religious ethics of organ tissue transplantation. And so we had a day long proceeding. And among the members there were individuals who were actually from one of the councils of jurisprudence or FIC councils. And this one is from the Islamic Society of North America, which is one of the largest um, sort of, uh, if you could almost think of it as like um, if you're Baptist, a Baptist conference, Southern Baptist Conference, where okay. from uh, if 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 the pastors and bishops and so on sit and and agree about something then the body politic below them then embrace that ruling so islamic society of north america or isna has its own body of scholars that look at various ethical some of them are religious some of them are financial um say for instance the issues around um uh, you'll read in the bible um particularly old T- testament about interest uh usury and so they'll say okay well the council will say well what is what is usury today right mm-hmm. and so what financial instruments uh, are not acceptable or acceptable so in the same way we asked the the thick council to take the information from this day-long conference sponsored by the think tank international institute of islamic thought uh and then they met um over a period of years this is like sending something to the supreme court Mm. (laughs) right Right? uh and we kept hammering them guys please can you give us your ruling because people literally people are dying Mm. to know what is your opinion um, and finally, uh, they did issue an opinion. But for a number of years, we presented um, at uh, their medical association. They have a breakout session and at, at their annual conference, um, discussing this in the open forum. I think uh, that was the first the first year that we did that. Uh, Brother Sharif's family uh, was on the panel. So it brought a human face to to the issue, and I think I think his family's engagement and other families that came forward in the in in the sort of public meetings really caused the city council to say, okay, this is something that, in a in a supreme court sense, this is this is a a matter that this court should take on, and. Um, ultimately they came with an opinion that said under certain circumstances um it it's permissible we're not going to say uh it's, it's strongly encouraged but permissible under certain uh circumstances and of course you know like when you read anything from a supreme court uh the dissenting opinion is also you know has <laughs> has some space in it
6: and i but i think all of that's good and, that and was just, December of nineteen, December of twenty nineteen, that they rendered that decision. Right, right, right. Oh, okay.
4: And, 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 and so it took years uh, of some heavy lifting to get those scholars,
2: sure.
4: um, as as almost as judges. But uh, but anecdotically, I want to tell you, uh, I I was at Isma's convention, just leaving uh, our forum, going down the escalator. And I saw a family that I knew going up the escalator and they looked at me and they said, Imam, it looks like we missed your session. I said, yeah. They said, so I just want to know, can I, is it permissible or not? I pulled out my driver's license and I said, (laughs) I'm an organ donor. Mm. He said, that's enough for me.
5: (laughs) 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 Fantastic. (laughs) Uh,
4: But you know, Really, because these are issues that, um, people. I mean, people. You know, everyone weighs. You know, is this something I should do or not? Not do. If there's no family history, there's no cultural legacy of this is what we do. Um. People wonder, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, and if you have, if you have a ruling or an opinion, or you have leadership, and people say, okay, well. You know, if it's good enough for the imam, it's good enough for me. Mm. And mm. I don't need, I don't need the, I don't, you know, I don't need to read a long, you know, treatise. Um, because at the end of the day, these kind of rulings are designed really to make people's lives easier. Mm. That in, when they're in moments of conflict, mm-hmm. that they have, they have something, you know, solid that they can hold on to.
1: Some guidance. Uh,
4: and And in that, And by the way, what we learned is that just because Imam Jahari says or or the Fiqh Council of North America says, that doesn't mean people are going to do it. People do or or not. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the quiet of their space, people Mm -hmm. have sometimes other compelling reasons to do or not to do something. Um, But having having, uh, a, a fatwa Right, which is uh, this religious ruling from the thick Council, uh, really does help. And there are councils who have similar, and that is in Britain. The British Association of Muslims um, has a, a has a Fiq ruling about saying that it's permissible. In Saudi Arabia, there are fiqh councils that say it's permissible in Saudi Arabia. So they have kidney transplant centers in Saudi Arabia. Some people who are very Saudi centric? Well, like if Saudi Arabia is conservative as they are, if they have kidney plant transplant centers, it's got to be. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean they I, I don't want to use the word I, I can say this because I'm you know I'm dry, right? They have some things that are really backward. Women can't drive, right? For me, that's pretty backward, right? Yeah. You're not gonna find it in the Quran, you're not gonna find the Prophet Muhammad ever saying women should not drive, right? This is this. They're taking the law off the books slowly. Mm. But um, with all of that backwardness, they have a number of world class kidney transplant centers. So if it's good enough for them in the Gulf, it's good enough for the rest of us.
1: That is perfect. And that kind of brings us to um, Colin. I'd like to know how Eversight got involved with this great mission and organization and uh, kind of what insight you have as to how we can share it with others and make sure that this education and training and support of the community continues to go forward and to grow.
5: Yes, wonderful. Thank you very much for for having me and and allowing me to to share in in this work that that we're doing together with Muslim Life Planning Institute. Um, So really, our work in this area began as an outgrowth of our work internationally. Um, As Kareem mentioned at the outset, I'm Vice President of Global Development for Eversight, so I'm responsible for all of our um, international programs. And we work in a variety of countries, several of which are majority Muslim countries. Um, And among other things, one of the areas of work that we do is to build effective systems for eye banking and cornea donation. Um, The largest such work that we've been doing is in Pakistan, where we've been engaged for the last few years in a program to build a a national network for eye banking and cornea donation there. That's a country of about 200 million people. Uh, 97% Muslim has a very high incidence of corneal blindness due to a variety of factors. And it really kind of points out the importance of this this work to our mission at Eversight because most of the world's population currently lacks access to site restoration through cornea transplantation. And the reason for that is a severe shortage of cornea tissues globally. Um, We've gotten used to over the last 25 years or so the idea that in the United States, anyone who needs a cornea transplant can get one thanks to the generosity of our donors and donor families. Um, But in Pakistan, for example, there are 250,000 people right now waiting for a cornea transplant.
4: Um,
5: So that's that's why we engage in this kind of work is because to to really take care of those patients, it's absolutely necessary to build these effective systems. Um, And so as we've been engaged in that work, we've learned a lot about the importance of cultural competency in building a successful donation program because it's it's really not just about the clinical best practices. it really has to also be about connecting and building trust between the medical transplant field and the community at large. So by engaging with Muslim communities to build culturally appropriate donation systems um, in countries like Pakistan we learned a lot of lessons, and we wanted to find ways to bring those lessons back and help to inform our engagement with our Muslim communities here in the United States. We're we're one of the largest iBank organizations in the U.S. Our service area includes five states, um, as well as our international activities. So, so, And it was particularly important to us um, uh, to inform our engagement with Muslim communities because, as Karim mentioned, at the beginning, we're headquartered in Michigan, which has one of the largest Muslim populations in the United States. So with that in mind, we began working, uh, I think about two two years ago or so is when we really started out, um, working with Muslim Life Planning Institute to develop our current outreach program that we've been working on, which has been generously supported by grants from the Detroit Medical Center Foundation and the Gift of Life Michigan Foundation. And we really see this partnership with MLPI as a first step toward developing better understanding among transplant professionals for how to build strong and trusting relationships with Muslim communities. And we hope we can eventually develop a model that can be used in many such communities, both within the U.S. and overseas. Um, We're still very much in a learning phase um, and we know how important that that learning is to to the success of the of the work I think um, I think Imam Jahari mentioned earlier the importance of just listening um, to understand where people are coming from um, and that 's been probably the, the biggest lesson that we 've learned working overseas and it 's such a simple thing but it 's such a profound thing is to just just listen and, and develop that understanding. Um, and so, as I said, we, we've been trying to engage with that and then to, to be able to bring it back and, and use that to inform our, our engagement here in the U.S.
0: Thank you. And, uh, Kareem, I'll uh, toss it back to you. You had mentioned earlier in the podcast about um, – uh, you know quickly going through some of the tools that you guys offer MLPN.life is where we were researching we thought it was a great site but best practices for developing outreach approaches uh, and that includes intro to Islam cultural norms attitudes it, it was just like a one-stop shop so if you could kind of hit on some of those important points there
3: uh, sure sure I think I think um, what I w- the point I wanted to drive home is that I think that there are a lot of um, entry points. Uh, where the education awareness uh, and some of these innovative uh, learning experiences actually uh, can really be effective in transforming uh, organizations, and specifically uh, organ procurement organizations, uh, in um, their dealing not only with just Muslim communities, by the way, uh, but uh, I think uh, uh, more broadly uh, speaking, uh, just based on the approach and the information uh, that we cover, but as well, specifically the Muslim community. And so, as you said, we've we've written uh, a curriculum uh, that does include introduction to Islam, uh, as well as uh, family dynamics, choices in the grieving process, uh, appropriate palliative care for Muslims, uh, uh, a module on um, uh, sensitivity training, uh, overcoming your uh, your own bias, understanding Muslims and the Islamic faith, and as well uh, another uh, module uh, entitled Islamic bioethics. Uh, and medical ethical concerns, uh, and so we're really in that space where uh, we want to assist uh, the OPO professional community uh, with their ability to, to to have confidence going in and speaking with Muslim families, or with that level of cultural confidence that uh, will we'll have it that the Muslim family doesn't even hear the question as to whether or not you authorized, but that the that the the sentiment um um uh is what actually uh, comes true and that the natural inclination of that family uh to give a gift uh that um uh will give again and again uh, something that families actually uh, uh would would really be open uh you know to doing as it happened with Samuel and his family.
1: And uh, Kareem, I'd also like to put a, a, a little plug in there for your profound conversations. Uh, you're in your second <laughs> season, um, a huge fan of that as well. And I I, I think that it is tremendous value um, to anybody that listens to those conversations. They're frank, they're honest, they're well educated, and I've just found it to be um, a great learning experience for me. And so i uh, I think that we should point people in that direction yep. as well. <laughs> so, um, yeah. well, well, been I, mentioning... well, thank
4: you for that. <laughs> no, I, I, I want to I raise my hand before we, um, we conclude um, to something that um, we've said a couple of times in different ways. But one of the things that I think we have found um, that is most um, and, and perhaps unique. To the the Muslim mindset is a concept called Sadaka Jariya. Sadaka Jariya, a perpetual charity. And so for many people who are looking at the loss of a loved one, are thinking, what 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 can continue to bring benefit to the life of my loved one in this life for others and in the next life for themselves. And that thing is a something that I could give that after my death will continue to bring benefit to those who are alive. And so when Muslims think about organ tissue transplantation as a sadaqa jariya, as a perpetual gift from their loved one, um, it is a profound discussion. Mm.
5: Uh,
4: it, is, it is the discussion that, that I think uh, in most of our, our encounters, In most of our encounters has been the thing that weighs heaviest uh, on their hearts. Not, not, uh, not. How does it? how What? What is the procedure that's done? Uh, not who's going to get the organ, but is this going to be imam for my loved ones? Uh, something that's going to continue to donate life and health uh, and and all manner of of opportunities, so that my loved one can continue to reap benefits for that donation until um until whatever impact that that person who i have helped ends and so we've and so for us it's really a it's really a profound concept uh of of charity mm-hmm. uh, as a perpetual gift well,
3: i think hey, can i add something to that this sure. is The ha- yeah what i want to add to that's interesting because as well um in understanding uh, the sentiment um, that Muslims have just in in, in terms of uh, uh, feeling obligated, right, to uh, do work that, you know, would provide a benefit in this life and in the hereafter, I think if you follow that to its logical conclusion, the conversation around the global need uh, for i corneas makes a lot of sense to Muslims. When we connect the uh, the idea that donation is permissible in Islam and disconnect the notion that donation has anything to do with the mutilation of the body, we can then make the connection between the need that people have around the world and how a simple choice that we make in terms of providing cornea is actually living into that Sada Qajariya. Uh, that uh the imam uh, spoke of and that's why this relationship with eversight uh is just so beautiful uh, and it's a it's an easier conversation um uh, to have uh, with uh, people and I think once it catches on you know with the multitude of Muslims that we have in this country around I corny I think the solid organ and tissue conversation uh, will become a lot easier
4: but by, by the way that, that that word in Arabic sadaka Is a similar word in Hebrew, sadaka. So as we uh, engage in this work in a in a multicultural way, there are many lessons that we learn that are actually transferable to other cultural and ethnic groups. So that uh, it's so our engagement with the Muslim community isn't uh, Uh, just sort of a narrow one-off but really opens us up to a kind of global way of thinking about about things and in many ways there are many cultural overlaps They may call them something different uh but they're really the the entree to people's you know heart and soul as it relates to uh, issues around the transcendent nature of the human spirit
1: I think that's the human connection that we all do this work for. And mm-hmm. uh, I couldn't have said or summed all this up any better than um, uh, Imam and uh, Kareem. I thank all of you for being with us. Colin, your insight and in, um, bringing experiences from other countries to our country is invaluable. And I look forward to working with you more. Um, Samuel, Sharif, thank you so much for sharing your story and your perspective. And I wish you peace moving forward. And um, I know that your, your, your daughter is a hero and is continuing to live on in others. And I thank you for that. Um, Imam, I remember you from four years ago. Uh, I remember your speech. So uh, uh, you were as funny today as you were then. And um, I I truly look forward to working with you. you in the future as well. And Kareem, I uh, think you know, you, you know how much I, I think, think of you. I don't think of myself
4: as funny, by the way. Oh, but oh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> okay. well, you, you make me
1: smile and you bring happiness. Oh, yes. so and you about... make learning fun. <laughs> yeah. yes. I have about 18 pages of notes yeah. here. <laughs> same. I'm not sure all the spellings all right. are really good. But... Um, but we're there, and so I, I just I, I can't thank you enough, and um, for giving us You're the welcome. time. I I look forward to future episodes with one or all of you, mm-hmm. and uh, we will be in touch. That's not a threat, by the way, but it is a <laughs> promise. So, <laughs> and I'll see you on uh, at your um, arena event, but I'm not going to mention the dates. Excellent. <laughs> we look
4: forward. Thank you.
1: Great. Thank, you so, thank you so much. Thank you.
4: Blessings. Blessings.
0: Here on The Gifted Life, we are taking a moment for mental health. And Sarah, you
2: mentioned caregiver burnout. So um, we're going to talk about caregiver burnout today and what are some ways you can fight it. Um, So just to be clear, what caregiver burnout means is you are the primary caregiver, the primary support for a family member, a friend who is in a moment of need, whether it's illness or um, otherwise. Mm -hmm. And it can be very hard, particularly with illness. A lot of times this conversation leads around um, end of life. So with family members who are either entering hospice, who have been diagnosed with cancer. So what we're learning in a lot of research is that it's very, very difficult and can create a lot of burnout for people when they are the primary caregiver for someone. Um, So just want to talk about some hints and some little things that you can do to take care of yourself as Mm -hmm. well. Uh,
0: I've had to travel that um, road many Mm -hmm. a time. And I just remember exhaustion. Like, yeah. Brain, like you can't mm-hmm. even think. I remember being in that spot. So I'm curious.
2: Right. And you know, there's a lot of guilt that comes with that because, first and foremost, is just recognize when you're feeling guilty about your exhaustion, about your burnout, because it's okay to feel those things. It's hard work, it's emotional, it's physical. So know that it's okay to feel burned out mm-hmm. because it is, it's an important job and it's very difficult. Um, so the first thing is just to assemble your own team. When you are a caregiver, your whole job is assembling a team for the person you're caring for, right? Make sure you have your own team, friends, family, people outside that you can go to just to talk, just to let them be there for you, or to distract you. Mm-hmm. Whatever you need, have your own team. Um, I always say, you can't care for someone unless you're cared for first. right? So make sure you've got that in place. Um, and practice all those good coping skills we talked about, practice mindfulness. Um, Do anything you need that makes you feel good and makes you feel purposeful and find an outlet. So practice your good coping skills and also have a hobby, have something that's creative that you can focus on for yourself that makes you feel round and whole and um, lets you have an outlet. Mm -hmm. Um, And then this is the most important one, in my opinion, which is to set boundaries. So it's hard to do. It's very hard to do, especially um, for small things like if you're a parent and your kid has a project or if you need to say no to bringing brownies to the soccer practice, whatever it is, know that you have boundaries and there's only so much you can handle. Mm-hmm. We're all just human. We can't fix everything. We can't be everything for everyone. So set very good boundaries and stick to them. Mm-hmm. That's the main point is to stick to those boundaries. And it's OK to have boundaries. Mm-hmm. So, Sarah, what should a caregiver at
1: work do when they come home and are, continue to be a caregiver? So mm. it's a nurse, a doctor, a, a physical therapist, a psychologist,
2: psychiatrist, social worker. Right. We hear that a lot in healthcare. So, um, when you're a healthcare professional, you your job is to help people, and then you have to come home and you have your own family and friends. You have your own responsibilities. So, know that it's okay to say no. That's a good first boundary: saying no to things that you can say no to. Um, and know that it's okay to feel tired when you get home and to take a moment, whether it's 20 minutes by yourself to take a shower, just do something that's for you. And then you can go and reconnect with your family and friends when you're ready. Mm -hmm. Um, If you are exhausted and you're to your limit because of whether it's your mental or physical exhaustion from work, that time, if you don't say no, that time with your family is not as whole as it could be if you didn't take that 20, 30 minutes to yourself. So, no, it's okay to say no for a little while. And when you're ready to connect, connect. Great advice.
0: And breathe through it like we talk about.
2: (laughs) Big deep breaths. Yeah, <laughs> healthcare I'm, givers forget that.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. y'all do. Um, I've had some great teachers uh, in my life, just for me watching. So, like my sister took great care of our, our parents and and all of that, and watching how she did it. So I, I picked up certain things that I thought you know were important that I have in, in you know my bag of tools. But also, um, we travel with Team Louisiana to the transplant games. Have a lot of recipients, so there's a lot on there, and I think them talking together, like talking Mm -hmm. to other people who have been through it,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: that seems to be a big help for others.
2: Oh, yeah. Support. Know when you need to um, lean on someone. Know when you need to feel validated because no one understands your struggle as well as someone who's been through something similar. So find a community of support. There's lots of online like Facebook groups of friends, family who have been through similar things, grief support groups, different things like that, that you can go to and find that support. So it's very important to find people who have been through similar things who can validate you and affirm you and let you know that you're not alone. And also, if this is um, a family member or a friend who you're their caregiver for, find little ways to connect with that person that Mm -hmm. you're caring for that doesn't have to do with your caregiving. What I mean by that is. Your sole responsibility could become the medical health, the physical health, but find something to talk about with them that reconnects you to them as a person, not to their illness or their ailment. Yeah. And it'll bring about just a better, it'll reduce your burnout because they're a human too. They're still there with you and just find little moments and little things that you can connect to with them that aren't about their illness.
0: Yeah. And I see people around me doing that. I'm just like in awe, like, I didn't think about that. But that is the beautiful side of it when you work around all these amazing um, folks. So great topic. Uh, Do you have a topic you'd like Sarah to cover? You can email us at info at (laughs) thegiftedlife.org. And that is episode 149 of The Gifted Life. Thank you for listening, everyone. And remember, if you're not already registered, you can register today right now as an organ, eye, and tissue donor anytime. Registerme.org. Thank you to
1: our uh, guests today. And if you want more information uh, on this episode, you can find it at the MLPN. Dot life website
2: And guys, the best place to find us as always is our website, thegiftedlife.org. You can listen to any of our episodes on the website or Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. If you do listen on Apple, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating so that others can find us.
0: And we are on social, guys. Facebook, The Gifted Life Podcast, on Twitter and Instagram, at Gifted Life Pod. Thank you so much for listening, for sticking with us. We hope that you go out and do something you wouldn't normally do to help us make life happen. Have a great one. This is a production of LOPA, or the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency. The Gifted Life is hosted by Lori Steele, Joey Boudreau, and Sarah Blakemore. Our executive producer is Kirsten Hines. Producer is Shalon Caraway. Intern is Rebecca Ranham, And we are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Covington, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez.